Well, at this time, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Acts 27. This series in Acts, as we're wrapping it up, we're kind of in that storyline part. Again, this is the early church. We're understanding how God brought about this movement that changed the world. And in and, and this point, the church is really starting to catch fire, and it's affecting the leaders of Rome. It's affecting the leaders of the Middle East, and it's beginning to reach the far reaches of the known world at that time as, as people, some of the disciples, that even get as far as India and Iraq and Iran, modern-day countries, but under different names back then the gospel is going out but what we're learning in this is there the teaching that we're doing over these last few weeks is taking a look and gaining wisdom and understanding from how the disciples are living out their faith during this time and today's story brings about this challenge of that's what you do in the face of maybe new wisdom that might want to come In other words, you know, we talked about three weeks ago, you know, sometimes we deal with false accusations and we see how Paul dealt with that. Last week we talked about like, well, when leaders you don't like are right before you, how do you treat them? How do you even consider leaders? What what is upon your heart? Are you even praying for their souls? But this week it's like Paul dealt with something that, quite frankly, is everyday life. You see, you and I live by unwritten standards of prevailing wisdom, common sense wisdom but what if God provides wisdom that might be juxtaposed to the prevailing wisdom how would you know if God's sending you in a different direction than what would be typical or common how would you know that God wants to offer a divine wisdom as opposed to normal practice wisdom case in point When I was uh, coaching a baseball team in Westchester, Pennsylvania, three years ago, we were driving from Lidditz three times a week to Westchester to play baseball. My son was on the team, and I was one of the coaches. I was partnering with another coach named Gene, and Gene was a a beer distributor. He had a a large beer distribution company, and and we were building relationships with him and his family and so on. And I remember that relationship getting to that place where he says, hey, Tony, I've got a gift for you. And he's really excited for me. And and so he hands me this bag and opened the bag, and it's it's a T-shirt promoting his company. I was like, I, I like it. I probably won't preach in it, but I like it, right? You know? and, and he's like, oh, is that okay? Was that appropriate? It's like, totally fine, totally fine. But the experience of coaching that team in Westchester was awesome. There were so many unique things that happened during that year. But on the baseball field, something happened that ties a little bit to what I see going on in this text. It's a moment where baseball players, quite frankly, dream of. It's a semifinal game in a baseball tournament in Phoenixville. In the semifinal game, it's a tie ball game. We're the home team, and we have runners at second and third and two outs. All right, second and third, two outs. Now, up to that point, before that second out happened, the infield for the other team was playing in. And if you know anything about baseball, it's because they're wanting to keep any runs from scoring. Because if we score a run, the game's over. It's called a walk-off win. So they were making sure that the game would not be won by any runs. So they were playing with the infield end. Second out happens. Now we're stuck with second and third. Two outs. And I have my shortest, smallest player at the plate. 
Now, this kid was actually a, a decent hitter, a good hitter, but uh, what I saw happen with the defense at that moment, and again, I'm coaching third base. I'm making all the signs about what we're going to do. I took notice that, again, they brought their infield from being in, and they went back, but they went further back than normal. And their third baseman I've been watching throughout the game did not have the greatest arm, and he wasn't great with his feet. So I have all this information in my head. I'm looking at the player that I have there who's, again, a good hitter, but he's a fantastic bunter. Now, if you know anything about baseball, you never bunt with two outs. It is like against the rules, unless you want to write a movie script called Bull Durham. <laughs> then maybe you would come up with the idea of bunting to end a game with two outs with the game on the line. But, but in this case, this is real life, you typically don't do that. But I'm looking at, I've got a very good bunter at the plate who is fast. I have a third baseman who's playing way back than normal, and he doesn't have great feet, and his arm is okay. I'm playing the odds thinking, I need to get that run from third to home. I'm going to call the bunt. I called the bunt. The kid stared at me like, are you nuts? <laughs> he pulls out the stick. He does the bunt, catches him off guard. He gets up the line. The throw went wild. We win the game. We go to the championship game the next day and lose. So it didn't end great. But in this game, in this game where we won, after that kid did the successful bunt, and then we had the runner come across the line, our team is celebrating with the kid that won, the, that ran, that scored the winning run. And I notice that the kid that laid down the bunt is just past first base, throwing his helmet, throwing his glove, throwing a fit. I'm like, what is going on? So as the kids are celebrating at home plate, I go over there, and I get there in time to hear, have the mom of this player there as well. And as soon as I get up to this player, with fury and tears in his eyes, and I keep in mind he was 12 years old, all right, with fury in his eyes and tears flowing freely, he says, you don't bunt with two outs. <laughs> and I'm looking at him, we won the game. You know, I'm like, it just did not make sense. But the prevailing wisdom, the common sense, is you don't do that. But in this case... Measuring all that was around, I was using information that was not in his head. And so in this case, the prevailing wisdom was not maybe the wisest course of action. But again, that player who was questioning it was not considering all the factors I was considering. Is that not true sometimes when it comes to dealing with normal logic, common sense practice, prevailing wisdom... That when we get this sense or this nudge from God that seems to be counter what we've always learned and we begin to question it. Well, why would God ask me to do something that I've always done it this way and it's always worked? It's always produced good fruit for me to follow this pattern and why would I go and do that? Well, perhaps... Just like in my situation, the player didn't know all the th wasn't considering all the things the coach was considering. And couldn't God be considering way more in the moment than maybe we have at our fingertips that common practice would say, we should do it this way. But God is saying, maybe you need to do it different. 
You see, Paul is confronted with a situation where the norm is going to be challenged by a directive or a sense of the Holy Spirit that Paul has in his journeys. So in this passage, in, in Acts chapter 27, we have the moment that Paul is now leaving Jerusalem and Judea and leaving there to go to Rome. To get there, he gets on a sail ship in verse 1. So let's begin by reading there. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, uh, about to sail for the ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, all allowed him to go to, to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and, and he put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sinaitis. When the, when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed for the Lee of Crete opposite of Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had become dangerous because by now it was the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives as well. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot or the captain of the ship. And since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that they should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was the harbor in Crete facing both the southwest and the northwest. Okay, a little context. Just so you can understand the mindset of Paul in this moment. In chapter 23, Paul received a personal message from God saying, you have defended me in front of the people of Jerusalem. Now you will defend me and proclaim me in Rome. So he had already received a message. You're going to Rome. Now he's en route. But in chapter 25, so the chapter 23 is when he's told you're going to Rome. In chapter 25, we see this. I am now, Paul speaking, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself very well know. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if charges brought against me by these Jews are not, are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. So therefore, I appeal to Caesar. What happens here then in that text is even though God had said you're going to Rome, Paul basically in human form secured it. So since he's appealed to Caesar, yes, now he is going to Rome. So it is happening. And so we have this journey. He's now on a ship and he's going to Rome. They left apparently at a towards the end of the good sailing season, if you will. Now, today, if you were to travel by sea in that part of the world, it's not a big deal to travel during the times of the year that he was traveling because it's not by sail. 
But when it says here that it was extraordinarily difficult or long, it caused them to be delayed and it was taking longer and it put them into the season of the year where you don't want to sail. When it says in verse uh, 9 that they, that they were sailing at the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement happens somewhere between September and October. That's an okay time of year. It's a difficult time of year to sail. But if you get into November, you cannot sail. November through February is a no-sail zone time of the year if you're a sail captain, a sail ship. So in this case, they were flirting with being in the worst time of year to sail. It's possible, but it's not great to do so in September and October. And Paul is taking measure. Now, what right does Paul have to speak into this? I mean, after all, you've got several characters here. You have the pilot of the ship, or the owner, the captain. Then you have the centurion who's there, who's in charge of the Roman detachment that's on the ship, guarding the prisoners. And then you have the prisoners, and then you have the sailors, and then you have the soldiers. So you're going to see all of those characters in this story. But in this moment, Paul is merely a prisoner. He's a prisoner on the ship. He has spoken something that obviously gets heard by the pilot or captain of the ship and gets heard by the centurion. He is questioning the norm. Paul, it's what we do. We do not stay in Fairhavens. We go to Phoenix. Phoenix is the better place to winter. Fairhavens, not so much. And so they're, they're, they're having this, this thought that's like, the common sense says we should not stay here, Paul. But Paul is taking stock of what is going on. He has seen that we're going into the wrong season of the year. And another thing I can say is on Paul's resume is, prior to this event, Paul has been shipwrecked three times. I mean, that's experience. That's a veteran shipwrecker. So you have Paul here that's knowing is like, this is looking awfully familiar. I've experienced this before. And quite frankly, I don't want to experience it again. Now, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to put myself into the text for a moment. If I'm in Paul's shoes, I am horrified. I come from Kansas where the closest body of water is the Gulf of Mexico, and that is about 20 hours away. I am a flatlander. I am used to a lot of land as far as the eye can see. The idea of being in a sea shipwrecked is the worst story you could ever give me to end my life with. I have never gone on a cruise. I have been on the Pride of the Susquehanna and the Susquehanna River. But that's about as close to being able to be shipwrecked as I've ever gotten. I'll wakeboard, I'll water ski, and that's fine. But again, I can see the coastlines in that. But the idea of being shipwrecked is horrifying. And Paul's gone through it three times. He has motive to say something in this moment and to forget himself that he is a prisoner. I'm, I can even see Paul. It's like, oh, man, this is going to happen again. So he, he gets himself closer. They're talking about what they should do. And Paul speaks up and says, um, I think we should stop and just stay here. Or we're going to end up losing the cargo, the ship, perhaps even our lives. What do you think? The captain of the ship's like, you don't winter 
You don't winter in Fairhaven. I mean, after all, the reason why you don't winter in Fairhavens is because during the winter, Fairhavens is exposed to the wind. So it's much colder and less comfortable in Fairhavens. We would be better off in Phoenixville. And by the way, uh, this, this place that, he, that they're trying to go to is actually only 40 miles away. They want to get there. They, they feel like it's like it's, it's within reach. 40 miles. We can sail that in less than two days' time. Makes sense. But then it says in verse 12, since it was unsuitable for the, uh, to winter there, because again, it's not going to be comfortable, the majority decided that they should sail on. Who did they listen to? The captain. Who did the centurion listen to? The captain. Who did the sailors and others that might be speaking in? It's like, don't listen to him. We don't want to winter in Fairhaven. We'll go with the captain. Forget the fact that they've been struggling with the seas already. Forget the fact that they are now in some of the worst times of the year to actually set sail. And they're on the brink of going into the season where you don't sail at all. But they ignored him. The majority ruled. They stayed with what you do. This is what we do. We go to Phoenix. We don't stay in Fairhavens. So they move on. Look what happens when we go forward. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a nor'easter. Heard that before? We experienced those here. Swept down from the island. The ship was then caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and we were driven along. Skip to verse 20. So then when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the Lord of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will not happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So major majority ruled following a captain, but now... The prisoner who was not listened to. The one who is the most experienced in knowing what a shipwreck's going to look like. Now all of a sudden becomes the leader. Look at what, who is now leading. The voice of the centurion is silent. The voice of the captain is now silent. What do they do? They look to Paul whose advice was seen now as wiser than the common wisdom. Paul has now received a word from God that's saying, you're going to go to Caesar, again, affirming it, and all those on board will live. So he gives this encouraging word to the people on that ship. Paul is now in charge. From prisoner 
to captain of the ship. Look at verse 27 and following. It says, and then on the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when, when, the mid when about midnight the sailors sensed we were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. When Paul said to the centurion, then Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Even the soldiers are now obeying Paul. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You have not eaten anything. And now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of the whole crew. Then he, then he broke it and began to eat. Then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they had wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they let, left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail into the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to pre prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plans. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and to get to land. And the rest were, told, were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Now, I love how Luke is writing this. This is interesting. We kind of lose the fact that Paul's not the one writing the book of Acts. Luke is. And Luke is saying that we all were on the ship, or some of us, blah, blah, blah. Luke is on the ship with them. So he's writing this and recounting his own personal experience, like, yeah, Paul was right, and everybody should have listened to him, and now they are. But he brings in certain pieces of the story. True that when things happen that are intense or, or chaos is happening, people panic. The first to panic were the sailors, they end up trying to come up with this secretive way that they can escape by creating a, diverge, uh, a, a diversion of acting like they're putting anchors in the water when in reality they're putting a getaway ship. Literally, it's a little boat. But nonetheless, they were trying to get away. And, and Paul says, unless they stay, stay with us, all of us will die. Well, that's a pretty clear opportunity to follow Paul's lead. And since he's calling the shots now, they cut the ropes to the ship and the sailors were forced to stay on board. Another moment panic, a panic happens when, when the soldiers are realizing if we just let people swim on their own, the prisoners are going to use this as an opportunity to get away. So let's just kill them instead. 
the centurion, again, remembering all that Paul's now done, and he was partial to Paul, says, no, I give different orders. All of us will make it, and they all do. Again, based on the leadership of Paul. This whole story takes on a unique dynamic when you really consider it. Common sense, or what you do, is you go to Phoenix. You go to Phoenix. That's where you're safe. That's where you're safe in the harbor, at least for the winter. It's more comfortable. That's what all the sailors do. And by the way, it's what we do that the captain makes the final decision, and the captain always knows best. That's what we do. And if the captain needs somebody to talk to, what you do is you talk to the highest Roman guard that is on the ship. That's what the centurion does. And what you do is you never listen to a prisoner. Because what could a prisoner know? That's what you do. You see, the common patterns of military operation, the common patterns of how a ship runs, says that the captain knows best. And you must follow the captain's orders in order to find unity in how a ship can operate. It is also good and common wisdom that somebody that is arrested is not somebody to be trusted. You see, what was happening here flies in the face of common wisdom, prevailing wisdom. A prisoner should not know better than a captain, and a captain should know better than anybody on the ship. But what was Paul dealing with? Paul was dealing with the fact that he was hearing from God. He was walking with God. He knew he was going to get to Rome. But he also didn't want to get to Rome through another shipwreck. And he could see what was happening. He'd experienced this before. So his experiences taught him, we're going to have to experience something disastrous. He also was looking at the fact this trip isn't going right anyway. He's also looking at the fact that we're losing good season to sail. Paul was dealing with some good wisdom. But he was also dealing with God's leadership in his life. Those that were just stuck with the patterns of prevailing wisdom would not hear it. They ignored it. And as a result, ship and cargo were lost. Their lives were spared, but everything else was lost. So what's the takeaways of a passage like this? First of all, I would say this. Human patterns of wisdom can often stand in the way of seeing the wisdom offered by God. Some of you are in charge of businesses. Some of you make big decisions that might impact many people. Others of you are making decisions just for how you lead your household. There are common sense wisdoms by which we can make those decisions. But what if, what if God had a different idea for how to make that decision? in which direction you should go. Would you be willing to follow after a prompting or urging of the Lord to go in a different direction than what the prevailing wisdom would tell you to do? Would you be willing to follow the guidance of something that might fly in the face even of the wisdom that you deal with? Would you be willing to even receive that wisdom if it was coming from somebody that you think in your mind doesn't know better? You see, I think human patterns, while are educated, certainly, we are educated as to why certain things work better doing it certain ways. But there are times when 
there is other wisdom that might provoke a different path. And often those other ways are given by God. Case in point, when I was a youth pastor at Hershey Free Church back in the 90s, we often would use Refreshing Mountain Camp as our winter retreat location. If you don't know Refreshing Mountain Camp, it's just north of Lidditz, not very far. And we had rules that were set up to give us experiences that kept the group going in the right direction. And if we abide by those rules, everybody will have the best of time. There were some rules that had immediate responses to them if somebody violated them. One of those rules was if a girl ends up in a guy's room, that's an immediate sending home. If a guy ends up in a girl's room, that is an immediate sending home. Good rule, right? Good wisdom. It makes sense. You don't want people doing that. There could be a lot of things that could go really wrong if you have them going into each other's bedrooms when you're there with a bunch of teenagers. It was a good rule. And as a result, kids abided by the rule. They didn't want to be sent home. Except for this group of four girls. In 1999, my final year at Hershey Free, they decided to sneak into the guys' room and they did a bunch of things to the mattresses, beds, and took some of the guys' underwear and threw it into the toilets, uh, to say the least. It was, it was not a good decision. And they violated the rule, guys, girls being in guys' room. It required an immediate response, of which was, you go home. But here's the problem. These four girls in particular were girls that I knew needed Jesus. We had prayed that God would put upon their hearts to come. And, and so many of us had, had given a lot of opportunity to say, why don't you come? Why don't you come on this retreat? And when they came and they registered for it, there was celebration that these four girls registered to come. Now I'm forced with a dilemma. Do I send them home and they don't hear the gospel that is going to be the next session was literally going to be the, the opportunity for them to hear and understand their need for Jesus. But rule says, and common sense says, and common practice, good practice says, they should go home. I went and found a place by myself and began to praise, like, God, what do I do? I don't want to send these girls home. I want them to hear the gospel. How can I make a decision here that upholds the rule but gives them the opportunity to hear. I began to struggle even more deeply, so I just started reading Scripture, and, and then it hit me, this, the profound meaning of the term mercy and the meaning of the term grace. Mercy says they don't get the punishment they deserve. Grace says they're given something that they don't deserve. And that's when God gave me this profound word of direction. It's called pizza. <laughs> As I began to process the meaning of those two words, it hit me. These girls deserve to go home. That should be their punishment. What if they didn't go? They learned mercy. But what if, how do I teach them grace? Grace. 
and I thought pizza. So I contacted two of my leaders, a husband and wife team. Their names are Jim and Luann, very, very dear friends. Jim and Luann are the types, like, they're, they're very willing to do whatever. They do the hard work. They're very wise and godly, but they're also black and white rule followers. I pulled them aside, and I said, Jim and Luann, I know these girls belong on a, on a ride back home, but I actually don't want to send them home. I want to be merciful to them. And I could see Luann's face going like, what are you doing? But then the next moment happened. And I want to teach them grace by having the two of you take them to Pepe's Pizza and having pizza with them. And while sitting there, I want you to teach them about mercy and grace. I remember Luann's face turning red. And I remember Jim looking at me like, I can't believe you just asked my wife to do that. So they did it. They didn't argue with me. They, they had a little, they had some questions. And so they left with those four girls. And everybody's like, are they being taken home? Because Hershey's not that far away. So are they being taken home? And, and I had to be honest. I said, no, they're being taken for pizza. And then I could see the look on the faces of these students like, that wasn't the answer I was expecting. And I, and I was concerned that I would have mutiny on my hands with the, with the fellow students. But I prayed, uh, it's like, God, help them just not think about it much and, and just accept it that this is something you're doing. As I shared, that was my final year with that church. About five years later, Luann tells me that she had heard from one of those girls. That girl tells her that she gave her life to Jesus Christ that next day because of that moment that happened at that pizza shop. And then she said, and by the way, this other girl just gave her life to Christ not too long ago. Again, five years ago, but five years later, she gave her life to Christ and pointed back to the moment with the pizza as haunting her all those years. That she had received something she didn't deserve. And what she deserved, she did not get. You see, prevailing wisdom said, send them home. And that's normally what I practice. And it worked well for us because we did not have youth groups that were out of control. We had good unity in the youth ministries I led. But this was a moment where God was wanting to do something different. It was a different pattern. I just had to be willing to hear it and trust him because I was afraid I was going to have mutiny with the, my entire volunteer staff and I was afraid that the kids were going to not ever trust my leadership again but I had to trust in God's leadership more than anything else especially over my fears secondly so if human patterns uh, of wisdom can stand in the way of us hearing from the wisdom of God another thing that I see in this is that Paul was trusting in God's wisdom to the point where it affected his spirit and attitude. He trusted in the guidance of God. In spite of the wisdom that was being shared around, he stayed his ground saying, we should stay in fair havens. Which brings me back to a passage that's in the book of Proverbs that many of us know. It says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. 
This word trust in the Hebrew basically means to cling to something tenaciously. When you trust it and you realize your hope is dependent upon it, you hold on to it tightly because you know you're secure if you do. Another moment when I was reading this, this uh, meaning of this term that kind of brought back a memory is three years ago when I went with a team from here to Aurora in South Africa, a, a, a funny moment happened where one of our students, I could tell, was in a bit of panic as we were in line to go through customs to enter from international territory into the territory of South Africa. And I could see that this, this young lady was, was definitely afraid, and I said, What's going on? And, and they're like, I'm scared to death. I don't think they're going to let me in. And I, I don't won't know what to do. And I just said, why don't you just go through with me? She's like, yeah, that's great. Good. And guess what? For the rest of that line, for about 20 minutes, she was so tight to me, you'd have thought she was my wife. <laughs> she was clinging to me because her trust was, I knew what I was doing, and I had done it before. So therefore, she clinged as close as she could, and she did just fine. It's that kind of trust that when you know the Lord has been there before and you know the Lord knows how to go through it, if he tells you to do it, if you truly trust him, you cling to him because you know where he is, it's going to go well. It's that same kind of trust. And especially when you know you're standing against the prevailing wisdom, you're going to want to cling to him if he's the one that's led you to go a different way. But my third observation is this, that when you trust in God, and you actually step out and do what God asks you to do, then guess what? The storm often isn't as intense as you think it is. It might be intense, but your experience of it becomes different. Yes, Paul ends up in a shipwreck again, but his life is spared, and trust is gained. So much trust that when they finally get to Rome, Paul was given all the freedoms of a free man, even though he was technically a prisoner in chains. Why? Because he'd earned trust of a centurion. He had earned trust of 276 people on this boat because he was trusting in a greater source, God himself. So each day, each of us make decisions, and most often we make those decisions based on the normal patterns of mankind. But when we actually stop and say, God, what would you have me to do? And if God offers a different path that is different from the normal patterns, are you willing to trust him and cling to him and follow his guidance and then trust in the outcomes? You see, that's where rubber meets the road, often in faith, is it not? When something goes against our comfortable patterns that God asks us to do, and then we have to trust in his different direction that is so unknown to us, but yet we know is from God. We're going to close this service by singing a song called Trust and You Know. How else can we end without thinking through when we trust in God? The next step is once you trust, you have to step out. So as we close the service with that song, let it become from the heart and say, God, whatever decisions I'm a part of, that I would trust in your wisdom, not my own. Trust in your guidance, not the guidance that the world says is better. And then I'm going to obey whatever you ask me to do. Well, let's close this service by seeking the Lord 
on this week, especially with some of the decisions that might be made here. So God, I don't know what decisions people are involved in this next week or what they've been in a season of, but God, I just ask that you would reveal to people as they study your word and as they pray and that you would move their hearts towards maybe a different direction that is a wisdom beyond the prevailing wisdom. And that, Lord, that you will give them the boldness and the, and, and the strength to trust in that and to cling to you and ultimately then to step out in obedience to it, Lord. So we just pray that, that as we do so, that we would learn afresh and anew, that you understand more than what we do, and therefore it's wise to step out and trusting you. So God, guide us as we live out this week, trusting in you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless and have an excellent week.